This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Previously on Mentally Yours. Basically, depersonalization disorder is a dissociative disorder. It can be made up of the symptoms of depersonalization and derealization, or it can occur as a specific disorder on its own. And usually most sufferers experience a sense of detachment from both their physical body and their mental body as well. So they'll often feel sort of like emotional numbness, not being able to feel sort of sensations of like love or pain and also sort of physical numbness. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. Check out our other fantastic podcast, it's called Good Sex, Bad Sex and it's all about sex. My name's Ellen and I'm Yvette. This week's guest is the wonderful Helen Lederer. Obviously, she's done all kinds of things in terms of comedy. You may know her from Abfab. You may know her from theatre. She's got a new show out at the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, which is called I Might As Well Say It. She's also working on a book, and she's also starred in Celebrity Big Brother. We're going to be chatting about the pressure of comedy, what it's like being on tour again, ageism in the industry, sexism, all that fun stuff, with some depression thrown in as well. Helen Lederer, thank you very much for coming on Mentally Yours. We're going to be chatting about your new show that you've got coming up at the Edinburgh Fringe, which I'm very excited about because I'm going to the Edinburgh Fringe. Mm. So, yeah, that would be great. 
Um, so it's called I Might As Well Say It. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Yes. I'm rather immersed in the ending of the show at the moment. And um, with the anxiety of untried out material, I tend to absorb a lot of negativity around me. And so I'm, I've got this fantasy of kind of leading the end so that it means something but I'm fueling it with anger so at the moment it it's it sounds like I'm going to go off in a great big sulk and then everyone will go oh my god was that supposed to be funny <laughs> are there key sort of topics that you'll be focusing on from your your life obviously you've had an incredible career you've had absolutely fabulous you've been on celebrity big brother you've done sort of a huge range of things from sort of acting um to comedy all sorts of things writing a book and you're working on another book as well, is that right? Yeah, I'm just old. <laughs> That's all it is. It's, I'm just old and it's been around for a long time. And a lot of the things in the... I don't know if young people have CVs now. Do you both have CVs? Yeah. They, they, CVs. Like on paper or is yeah. it all in a, a computer? It's mostly on computer. Yes, Basildon and Bond sort of paper thing of CV. Um because, you know, you can say you've been in thisy, thatty and you've probably only done, like well, me, you know, one line here and there. But... Good question, because it's like, why am I doing it after all this time? And the, the first time I was in Edinburgh, I was in 83, before you were born. Um, and the last time I was up was 14 years ago with Miranda Hart, just before she got discovered. I'd like to think I played my part in that, but obviously I didn't. She'd already done the pilot. Um, so I haven't been to Edinburgh for a while. So I think I've got to embrace that whole thing of being 63 and looking back and referencing it with with bits of work that will be identifiable without doing that awful glory hole of sitting down and my my life my darlings and when when I was in the young ones you know because who gives a you know what but on the other hand I have to reference it and the things that weren't important to me at all I just did them um, resonate with different generations because they watched 80s, 90s comedy like on repeats and on Gold and on Dave. So comedy is a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because it just pulls people together and, and divides them. People hate, with, with so much hate, if they don't like co comedy and they they have crushes, uh, you know, intense crushes, mm. particularly now with the stand-up that's mushroomed as a industry for agents who make profits. Mm, <laughs> definitely. I love Miranda, but I can't stand Mrs. Brown's voice. But well, there you go. Anyway. So it's, everything is Marmite, and, and you know that. And what's fascinating is that you're really sure, aren't you? And it's something that you just know. And, um, and I think it can be quite derailed. I mean... I did a, a play, here I am, standing actressy, at the Watford Theatre before it got redone. Uh, um, and it was by Ian Esco, and I was just in it, just had to learn the lines, which I always find struggle with. And they were mad. They were kind of, it was surreal theatre of the absurd, which I really like. I like things not making sense. I'm sure you guys do as well. I sense that. You know, it's just, it's lovely when things don't make sense, but in a way that you understand that they don't, so you can feel mad in a safe way, if you, if you see what I mean, because somebody else has done all the work for you. Um, you're not out of control, but a lack of control is quite um, enticing in a funny way. But anyway, so there we were in Watford doing this play, which was quite odd, and then people left and were so angry because they had sort of hadn't got what they wanted. They maybe felt shortchanged and teased, and they'd come up in the interval, because there were two plays, two hand and this, and at the end, and obviously I was thinking a few drinks, as I do, said that was the worst play we've ever seen. <laughs> so you're lucky you didn't have to be in it. <laughs> but on the other hand, I like being in it. So I just, that's kind of one of those lines you do. But 
Um, but that illustrates your point of, uh, you know, you, you like one thing and you don't like another. And there's a lot of anger, isn't there? Uh, there's a lot of expectation set up when you're uh, purportedly saying, uh, you have the audacity to say, oh, I'm going to do a funny show and it's just me and I've written it and I'm standing on my end. And people are going to go, yeah. Or they go, oh, I've seen you on something. I, there's something about you I like. I'll come. I don't know which way it's going to be. It's probably going to be a mix. How do you deal with the negativity where it's like you can't mm. argue with it? They just don't like it. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I at the moment, I'm sort of suffer, I'm experiencing negativity, and I'm. I actually did a Skype call today, a very bad quality Skype call with a, a meditatory yoga person to try and understand what I could do to. Uh, put out, put outside of myself the, the I, I, I was absorbing a lot of negativity, real or imagined, and it is just derailing me completely. So you have to go, that is not running me. You know, I have to run myself. I've got my truth and I just have to get back to that playful person that I am when I'm funny. Um, and that's all I can offer. Um, but I don't know, because comedians who do it people say oh they're sort of like a clown or tragic comedy that doesn't isn't surprising it's a very odd it's not a terribly usual thing to do and even now if you actually statistically looked at um the amount of let's say women who are doing it there's still fewer so it might not be the automatic go-to behavior career behavior if you can use the word career it's an odd thing comedy and it's an odd thing people not liking you. And it's something that I don't think I'll ever uh, be comfortable with. And that's just how you just have to know your your uh, qualities and, and learn better ways of addressing them. So obviously, this is a mental health podcast. Mm. I think the first sort of indication that I had that you might sort of be interested in this as a subject was when I went to one of the Mind Media Awards and you were hosting that, which was fantastic. Mm. Um, love that event. Um, why did you want to get involved with that? Well, uh, the difficult thing about me is I'm like the com comedy supply teacher. You know, um, Stephen Fry mysteriously was doing something very mysterious in Russia or somewhere where nobody ever knew, and they needed someone. Um, and I stepped in, but a number of jobs I've done, because like Caroline Quentin's been busy looking at houses in the Lake District. I I'll do it. Um, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, I was very privileged. I felt very privileged that they would trust me with that event. Um, I have. I was a social worker, a way back, a very bad one. Um, I, I sort of went in my twenties, and there are worse things to want to do than to want to help people in in some way without sounding remotely pompous. I've kind of feel very comfortable around people who are atypical, uh, shall we say, um, or on some kind of spectrum. I find that very normal, um, almost comfortable. <laughs> So, and I, I was very aware that to sort of define depression on that, I, I think because I knew uh, there were people there who had to had to be uh, on medication and, and were in danger of being sectioned, that kind of depression. So I had, to, out of honouring them, I was very careful to say that my depression, when I had it, um, words aren't their labels, words was reactive. It wasn't sort of chemical. In that sense, you know, uh, there's so much, um, the, the range of mental illness is vast. I don't um, understand it, obviously. But I do know that I did at one point um, feel 
darker than other times and did take six months of um, antidepressants, but that was some time ago. And I wouldn't, I would avoid it now, but it's always good to do things. Just do anything. I'll do anything once. I did a dive for TV once. I'm not going to do that again. You know, it's you could be open to all manners, a manner of treatments and things. When you were open about that time of your life, um, what kind of reaction did you get? Um, I don't know if I talked about it immediately, but once you do one thing and then if you're bobbing around doing jobs and then, of course, you have to, it's quite right, you know, you want to play ball you want to get interviews so that people at least buy your book or come and see you then you have to I, you have to say things um otherwise people won't want to talk to you so i think once i'd said it, it i'd said it and there is anyone can find it on the internet should they be remotely interested um and it's really a case of going um well if if that's helpful for some people then then it I, it was helpful for me i did a cbt uh backup um, with a very jolly lady who, who made, she had a list of things. I always felt, you know, like you were like a, a gym teacher going, right, now, how are we going to sort out your day and things like that? But it was good. It's good there are people out there that can help. So it's, it's good to, to share that. Um, but, I, but I'm interested now in, particularly because I'm going out there, I'm going to expose you know, all my, this may be rubbish. This show may well be rubbish. You know, I'm trying it out now. So one is quite raw and you and you just go, I'm older than I've ever been, obviously, aren't we all? So so try other things to kind of calm yourself or um, manage it. Do you have fears of depression kind of coming back or going through that darker period again? Um, I haven't had that. I know the difference of how that felt, which is interesting you ask, because it was a kind of sadness where you don't see the potential for not being sad in that qualitative way of being sad. And I think um, uh, uh, pressure and stress, which I kind of thrive on or I'm kind of addicted to being a kind of addictive personality, is so varied that you can go from being dark, sad, stressed, like we all are, to having a kind of moment of elation, you know, because you talk to a friend suddenly or because we get so stuck, we we don't reach out, do we? we? You know, enough. And then the smallest perhaps thing can actually just give you light. So that's what's wonderful about life, isn't it? You you don't it doesn't need to be a big thing at all. Just the smallest thing of somebody sending you a nice email. You just Get calmer again. You were on Celebrity Big Brother mm. a while back. <laughs> um, what was that like in terms of your own mental health and also how do you think that sort of affected the other people in the house generally on their mental health? I don't think I affected anyone in the house. I just kind of got on with it. I saw it as a... I tried to see it as a job that, I, that I'd signed up to do for money um, and maybe profile, well, yeah, both. I mean, that's how it's sold to you. And nowadays, we value it in those terms. Uh, in the can't stop how life is is uh, in that field. Um, I won't be doing that kind of thing again, having done it. Um, it was quite lonely. Um, and interestingly, there was the, that small, we're talking about small things changing, being game changers, game changers that... When I caught the eye of the the housewife person, I can't remember her name, the housewife of somewhere, Beverly Hills or LA, one of those pe people on the housewife, 
I knew she kind of got me, my humour, let's say, or, yeah, I hope that's not brash to say. And we just catch each other's eye and then you go, I can carry on now. Somebody's understood me. Um, so it's about being understood, isn't it, that mm. makes so much difference to sadness. So obviously in a house like that, um, everybody is having to run their stories and 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 do it in the way they know. Whereas obviously I'm not a reality TV product. Um, so I just um, hope for the best. But in terms of what the audience see in that, that obviously has to be the bigger story, the sex scandal, the, the jumping in and out in your bathing costumes. I mean, the, the, and the people in the programme will know that. Um, so you'd know when people would be telling you, uh, talking to you, and then suddenly you'd hear the of the camera and then go, anyway, when I was rehearsing and woking or something. And that's the human nature. I'm sure I did my version of that too. But I tried not to think about the cameras. I just tried to get my head down and and try not to think about myself. The, the power is to be yourself, really, when you're this age, because I don't know the tricks uh, that the younger people do. I find it very interesting that you said you found it lonely because I think a lot of people these days sort of aspire to to be sort of a reality TV star and kind of almost make a career of starting off in one reality TV program and going to another one and then another one and then you that's that's basically your mm. job. Do you watch any of the other reality shows? Do you have any thoughts on Love Island in terms of mm. sort of? Well, Love Island sort of breaks the mold, doesn't it? Because it's um, wherever you come from, we we now use it. We it's a reference point for escapism. It's kind of the acceptable face of Geordie Shaw in a way. Um, but it is a career structure. You're right, and you know, I meet I met an agent not for me. You know, the other day at a thing, and they see this as a, their income stream. And it is normal. It's not. They will earn money out of people, and then if they earn enough money, they can then say, and then we can experiment with things we really want to do. Well, that's how he sold it to me. But you know, this this is an industry, and it's here to stay. But do you think the people that are starring in it are probably quite lonely because we see them sort of having fun, supposedly in these big crowds, and yet we, I think we also kind of realise that they're being manipulated and sort of made into storylines mm. by the producers. I don't I don't think people mind. I think the the light of of being on is is over is so big that being manipulated or otherwise is probably not a concern for these people being on the television and earning a money earning money rather and you know being in the magazines being part of of this fame uh, process is is very attractive and is made attractive to people. And being being famous is is normal now. Um, so you can't put the clock back, really, can you? You just it wasn't like that when I I started what thirty years ago. That didn't exist. So you'd have famous people and you'd have elites, and you know you obviously any showbiz system has to have unfair often uh, tiers of of employ you know of of, of the limelight, but now. Um, this is, I think it's like, I, I, I don't understand it either, to be honest with you. Um, doesn't make them bad people. It just, it's, this is what they can do. Uh, for instance, in Big Brother, they have a, uh, shrink available who I talk to. You could ask to talk to the person. Um, I, you'd like, it'd be good to think there's welfare, uh, you know, like at university, you're supposed to have a person. I can't remember what they what the pastoral care. Oh, that yeah. makes me laugh. Pastoral. That word. I never understood what it meant. But you know, 
the, the well-being is looked at, but at the end of the day, ratings is what drives it. And ratings is not really to do with welfare. It's to do with uh, larger-than-life behaviour to, to get, you know, storylines that are sort of real but not real at all. So you're right, it is manipulated, but that's the game and that's and that's how it works. It's worrying how many people come out of shows like Love Island and will say, I'm experiencing extreme anxiety. And I think a lot of it is to do with the criticism that they get from the outside. Ah, yes. Um, and I imagine you feel the same with comedy where it's like you might do something that you're really mm. proud of, but then you've got feedback that maybe isn't as... Yeah. Do you know that's really important? That's something I was thinking about today that I have to be able to go, I'm doing this. And if it isn't liked, I'll still be all right. I'll still live. I'm doing it because I want to. I've chosen to. And it and other people's reactions can't define my health afterwards, my mental health afterwards. But that's that's not easy. And uh, going back to you know what you were saying about the people in Love Island, or whatever. Um, I'm sure it is lonely being incarcerated. It is lonely being incarcerated with a selected group of people. It's very unreal. It's like being in prison, and that would bring with it stress. But yeah, criticism. I don't think anyone can really prepare you for that. Um, but it's all around because, and it's feeding it. Those programs are feeding us, we the audience, sense of judgment and the fact that we feel so ready and comfortable to criticise personalities. But on the other hand, it's not based on real truth. It's based on a manufactured version of the truth. So maybe when we're being critical of those programmes, we're not really being critical. It's it's There's a kind of layering of, of fiction, isn't there, at the moment, of, of reality fiction. Um, and for us to kind of go about our business and survive, we have to get into our own authenticity and sounding very pompous there. But that is what I'm teaching myself now as I go through this particularly stressful period um, of, you know, exposing myself to judgment. But I'm cho I've chosen to do it. I have to keep telling myself I need to do this for whatever reason. I need to go back to this place that's always stressed me out. And that's how it is. And, I, and, and that's what I'm doing. It's really interesting that you talk about sort of it, it being stressful because I think some people assume that if you're a comic, then you're having a, a jolly old time, you know, just sort of touring, <laughs> laughing, touring. Well, yeah, you're touring around the jolly. country, you know, you're, yeah, you're making people laugh, you're having a drink, and then you, you go somewhere else and you do the mm. same thing. What are the different stresses that you face? Well, I'm sure there are people who do view it like that. I, they do exist. I think that it almost goes into a few categories, especially with the younger people. They're jolly, it's normal. Uh, they have agents, they're on a career structure, they had salaries. You know, it's all become very, quite normalised and uh, corporate and all to do with money. You know, it's it's respected in a different way to when I began. I, I had to fight lots of instincts and yet I had to go back to the real reason, which is from a child I always played. I was always kind of slightly hysterical and I, I was drawn to that play side I have to go back to why? Why the hell am I doing it? But there is. But I like being funny. I like not observing rules. I like looking at things and turning things around. I don't know. I just like not being serious. But the actual experience of being with other comics, oh, <laughs> the thought of sharing a drink, yeah, um, because things have changed. You know, it's complicated. 
Why did you make that noise there? <laughs> I want to know more about that. Are they are they challenging? Yes. You don't, you don't have to name names. No, but. they are challenging because on the other hand, you're meeting people who, whatever they say, are kind of psyching up before they go on. So you're not in a normal state. Mm. I'm a kind of very open, like, love me, love me, you know, Although you, um, I was a bit cross today, wasn't I? Because we were late, so you hadn't seen my lovely, lovely side. But, but when I'm doing gigs, I'm kind of more heightened anyway. I have to be. Um, and then when other people aren't like that, which is their right, I go, oh my god, oh, oh, and then I'll just go, oh no, that person's like the cold, you know, vibes. I very, I pick up vibes so quickly. Not all of them real, of course, <laughs> in my head. So um, atmosphere is very important. Yeah, I don't really enjoy that side of it, but it's what I do. And if you do make the old friend along the way, it's bloody wonderful. Speaking of friends, um, have you seen, have you noticed a difference in the way that people approach female comedians to male comedians? Has that changed over the years, do you think? Well, because now I'm old as well. So I, I, it's like I, I, it's, I'm in a different field altogether. Not only am I female, I'm also... In a, you know, I'm not, um, I mean, when I was started, obviously I went out with lots, in my case, lots of boys. Um, it's just rightly or wrongly, it's a bit of a pastime, really. So you take that away and you take your, gen, you, you know, that you're still a minority. I think I used to make people feel a bit awkward. They couldn't decide if I was neurotic or if they had to, should they get off with me? Should they label me as neurotic? You know what? Of course, that's all changed now because it's more bad. It's it's been no, more normalised, and the younger women now wouldn't talk in the way I talk at all. I I don't recognise myself in the women now. They don't have any of that hoo ha. I think people are very careful, <laughs> very careful. That's good. Society's changing, and, and and there are good people, and we want to to make we want to improve society, don't we? Largely, people want to improve that how it is and how we respect each other I think mm. that'll be a, a fair thing to say and that's and that language and that treatment is part of that um in terms of being funny it's kind of I mean I've checked my own material over and over and you go look if I want to kind of crack through and say something about hashtag me too and be funny then you know, there'll be some people who might be offended, you know, but so how do you cause laughter with this care of language? How do you demonstrate you're supposedly one of the good guys and whatever that means? So there's a kind of layering of, um, of, of paradoxically a source of censorship because you, you've got to be seen to come from the right place. Um, but if you want to make people laugh, that's an interesting question. It's up for debate. I'm trying to be really ruthless with my content um, so people can't say I'm a fascist, <laughs> but then I know I'm not. Yeah, I'm a bit frightened of the police, the audience police. PC brigade. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You might hate me for asking this. Go on, I won't. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about sort of potential sort of sexism in co comedy but have you noticed um, ageism in comedy at all, mm. um, particularly as a woman? Mm. Because it seems mm. to me like for a while there, there was, I remember when I was younger, there was a whole load of really quite old male comics, which is fine. They were quite funny, whatever. Some of them mm. weren't. But some, you know, some of them were, that's fine. But it was, there were a lot of very old men comics. And now there's kind of a mixture. Um, and now it's great because you have more female comics and you get sort of, 
older women. Mm. But yeah, that, that's why I was sort of worried about asking it. Cause I, mm. Oh, but, no, I don't mind. I mean, so, here I am. <laughs> so have you noticed, um, yeah, have you noticed any sort of ageism in terms of comedy? Or do you think it's all kind of universal and people don't really care as long as you're funny? No, I think there is ageism as an awkwardness. And again, I'm just one of those ge- generations where I, I had to sort of pioneer stuff because in the 80s when I began in my little set, there are only three of us doing it because French and Saunders are already kind of there. Uh, Joe Brand wasn't, hadn't, didn't exist at that point. There's three of us and two of those had the same name. So it's not to be too much of a challenge for the male compares when they introduce them. Um, but um, yeah, because nobody wants... It's awkward. I think you'd get an older woman on the, the what's it, the Have I Got News for You, if they're auditors or politicians like Anne Widdicombe. So older auditors are allowed, but no, I've certainly never been asked on that program. Um, so now I will never go. And I, you heard it here first. <laughs> Why would you want to go somewhere where they don't want you? Why? Now that is mad. Mm. Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable with those people. Well, then they brought in a rule, didn't they? There had to be at least one woman on a panel, I think, yeah. um, which was, and then you could almost sort of see them panicking, sort of <laughs> yeah. on these shows going, oh my God, we need to find a woman yes. quick. And then any woman. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, um, no, absolutely. That was a funny old debate because um, you could read that many ways. But with um, the uh, ageing thing, I still think people are more comfortable with odd People like like maybe a, a shepherdess of 60 would be fine, but a comedian of 60 would be, oh, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Or, uh, it, it, but it's not an equal playing field and it never has been. And, mm. and I suppose you just have to go, well, there we are. I'm just doing this and still doing it a bit. <laughs> How do you look after your mental health in the midst of all that kind of stress and ageism and sexism and all the kind of other difficult parts of Mm. being a comedian um with care at the moment to be honest with you um because that the aging that you obviously you know you're both all of you including our producer are young attractive people and you you are and, and youth is attractive so obviously i don't i can't be that and i can't change that and one day god forbid you will be my age so the point is age is something that you just can do nothing about. Um, and there's a sadness, I suppose, because in my head I want to be a player and I go out and I drink and there's part of me that doesn't see it. But then who wants to be that sad old loser where everybody's going, yeah, yeah, we liked you before you had your third wine, now bugger off. You know, it's like nobody wants to be that person. So, um, yeah, I think it's just been recognising what you can do and trying to do it with grace and good humour or some humour, <laughs> any humour would be good. And, you know, the majority of people in power will be younger than me. And, and that's their turn. That's, that's, how, that's fine. So one thing Helen was talking about was kind of ageism and the fact that everyone in the industry kind of feels younger and they're having their time and feeling a bit kind of left out and left behind. Mm. That must be very challenging in terms of, you know, if you're an actor or a singer or in any sort of industry like that. But what do you think it's like in terms of sort of the mental health community, if we're talking about that? Like, do you think people get different treatment? I Because th- I have a suspicion. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm 36, so I don't know. 
But I have a suspicion that people of a certain age get treated like for, for example I have experience of being in a mental health unit as a teenager I have a suspicion that that sort of treatment and the way you're approached and the kind of treatment that you get and the kind of doctors that speak to you and the the kind of community you have there is probably quite diff- different to the kind of treatment that you'd have if you were say in your 60s and going into a mental health unit or potentially you know were sectioned I don't know that because, like I say, I'm 36. But from what I've gathered from sort of speaking to people online, um, there's there's quite a difference between treatment for adolescents and for older people. I think that's definitely true. Even just seeing um, how my grandparents are treated in terms of physical health, they're kind of treated a bit like children and dismissed quite easily. Where it's like, oh, it's okay, dear, that kind of thing. Mm. But I think in general, it's people are tempted to categorise you based on your age. So mm. if you're a teen and you have certain mental illnesses, it will be classified as like oh, it's a teen phase or teen drama. If you're a mid forties man, maybe your depression is a midlife crisis. Mm. If you're in your twenties, anxiety is just like. Oh, you're just a young woman, so of course you're anxious. Yeah. So it's definitely age 100% plays a part in it. Mm. And I think also your own perception of age. Like, I'm 25 and I already feel like I'm getting old. Like, it's too late to fulfill my dreams. Like, I was supposed to have done this, this and this by this age. Like, it's complicated. Mm. Age does add to your stress and to mental health issues and it changes how you're treated as well. If you've been affected by any of the things we'll be chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116123 or go to thesamaritans.org. Thanks very much to our guest Helen Lederer, to our producer Sam Bonham, and thanks to Lucy Baker for the jingles. If you've liked this episode, come join us online. We have a Facebook group where it's a safe space for chatting about all things mental health. We also have a Twitter, which is mentally yours, spelled Y-R-S instead of actual yours. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.